0: The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, meet talking book narrators Jack Fox and Jill Fox on the Happy New Year edition of ACB Reports for January 2013. One of the most anticipated portions of the program of each annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind is a visit from a talking book narrator. Many of these individuals who bring books to life for thousands of people who were blind are employed by the American Printing House for the Blind in Louisville, Kentucky. During the 51st annual ACB conference, which was held in Louisville last summer, attendees were thrilled to hear from not one, but two talking book narrators. Jack Fox and his daughter Jill Fox were introduced by ACB Secretary Marlena Lieberg.
1: One of my most favorite things to do in the whole world is read books. How many people in this room love to read books? How many people in this room feel like when you listen to a book, The people who read those books to you are your friends. Well, even though I have not met our next presenters, they don't know me, but I know them. There's a poem about Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. This Jack and this Jill didn't go up a hill. They go to a recording studio here in Louisville, Kentucky. Did I say that right? Louisville, Kentucky. And they read the most phenomenal books to us. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm ACB welcome to Jack Fox and Jill Fox from the American Printing House for the Blind. Let them hear you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi.
2: Thank you. Well, thank you and good morning. Wow. Well, on behalf of all the narrators at the American Printing House for the Blind, including Mitzi and Roy and Barry and Carrie and goes on, Natalie. It goes on and on and on. Madeline, we say welcome. Uh, Jill is here with me. Uh, We're trying to get her daughter, Frances, who is two now, to become a narrator in the future. (laughs) And we'll officially change it to Fox Books. That's what we'll do. I
3: think of her as the 21st century fox.
2: (laughs) And she is a little fox in all manner of speaking, I'll tell you. She's a sweetheart, so... Well, it's our pleasure to be here, and uh, believe me, it's uh, great for us to be here and get to meet you because we're down in a little studio. Usually, we're in the basement, and I'm in one, and Jill is right behind me. Most of the time, we're recording at the same time. And so it's good to get out in the fresh air and the light of day and uh, get to meet you and shake your hands and greet you. And we thank you very much for your support. It helps us to know who we're reading to. Years ago, I started in radio when I was a senior in high school, And uh, I had a a lady who was the station owner and manager and told me that if you're going to read something, if you can kind of get some kind of feel about who you're talking to or what you're talking about, it will color your inflection, and that helps me a lot. So when I'm here and I get a chance to meet you, I know who we're talking to, and that helps make it a little more personal. Uh, Jill, anything you want to add here before we get started? We'll probably talk a little bit about ourselves some and then read a little bit, and I don't know if you... uh, if you have any questions, if we have time for questions, we'll be happy to do that, too.
3: So. Uh, I don't have so much to add. To that. I was thinking with the Jack and Jill introduction as we were coming up here, uh, I definitely followed my father up the hill, and I've been tumbling along ever since. <laughs> and very happily so.
2: Yeah, we joke. Uh, I've been in radio most of my adult life, and here in Louisville, I, I did a lot of commercials. I would go into recording studios and do things, and I was known as Jack Fox. And then Jill came along. Jill's in radio now. Jill does voiceover everywhere. So if I go into a studio somewhere, now they say, oh, you're Jill Fox's dad. So (laughs) She's about to get her due, though, because her daughter Frances is almost two and a half, but it's about a year she did a commercial. Uh, It was not a speaking part yet, but she's working on that. But now I have to introduce her as Frances Fox's mother, is what it is now. So... Well, let's tell you just a little bit about ourselves. I'll talk, and then Jill talks talk some, and then we'll read a little bit. I have been in Louisville here since 1973. I've been in radio all my adult life. Oh, I should back up and tell you, how many of you know that I'm a Harvard graduate? Did you know that? I don't think we have any Harvard... Well, now, before you start veritasing me, I ought to tell you that it was Harvard, Illinois, high school... <laughs> I said that one time when I was joking and some guy said, oh, Veritas, and I assumed that's what a real Harvard grad says to another one, and I wound up with egg on my face. But uh, I started in Harvard, Illinois at a little 500-watt daytime radio station. You know where Harvard is? Northwest of Chicago, right up near Lake Geneva by Woodstock. It's very nice. So, but I started in radio there and uh, worked in Evansville, Indiana, then Kansas City, and in Denver. While we were in Denver, Uh, We led a couple of tours of Europe through the radio station. I was Jack Frost in Denver at KOA Radio. And, uh, yeah, Jack Frost, really. Had a story one time. uh, I was on the air early one morning, and uh, I think Jill had just been born, in fact. And I was on the radio, and some lady called me up and said, You're going to have to help me out here. We were listening to you this morning, and you said Jack Frost. And I had just told my son about this frost on the window and how this little man named Jack Frost comes around and paints that overnight. And he said, wait a minute, if he's up all night, why is he on the radio now? The mother thought quickly and said, oh, well, he has a new baby. He has another mouth to feed. He took on a second job, she says. <laughs> well, we took a couple of tours to Europe. And uh, after we came back the second time, my wife Lou said... Wow, we didn't spend nearly enough time in Italy. We didn't get to Florence where all the art treasures are. Wouldn't it be nice if we could go over there and stay as long as we want and come home when we want? I said, that'd be great. And she said, let's do it. And I said, the only thing I could think of, I said, you're crazy. (laughs) She said, I know, but let's do it anyway. And we did. We sold her house, put her furniture in storage, and took two little girls and bought round-trip boat tickets so we knew we could get back home when the money ran out and went to Italy for about six months and came back and had to find work because the money ran out and I came to to Louisville here and we've been in Louisville ever since worked at WHAS Radio here my voice is also at uh, many airports around the country I may have stuck my nose into many of your your businesses as you came here telling you to to make sure you had your own bag stand to the right on the moving sidewalk while on the moving sidewalk please stand to the right to allow those wishing to walk to pass safely on the left so doing that for a long time and I started reading at the printing house, actually, in 1978. Uh, we have a little different system now. Then we had a lot of media people, and we'd go in and read once or twice a week now. We've got a good stable of people, and we're there at least four days a week, sometimes five days a week, and we can turn out more books that way, and it's nice. But uh, while I was there, uh, we had a little thing called the Jack and Jill Show on the radio for a while. Uh, Jill tell you about that, and that's kind of where she started. So,
3: Well, so I was... 16, I think it was, and there was a summer that I spent kind of not knowing what to do, and Dad was at the radio station, and I came down, and I uh, helped him. At the time, we still had uh, the carts, like the eight-track tapes that we would have that we would uh, play the commercial breaks on, and so my job was to kind of sit with him and file those and pull those, and then when I wasn't doing that, we would do crossword puzzles and just chat, but we did a little bit of the, the Jack and Jill show, and that was my intro to radio, but I never really imagine myself in radio, I think because I grew up with it, I kind of took it for granted, never considered doing it or really doing voice work of any kind. I um, went to Indiana University, Bloomington, and I got my BFA in photography, actually, and came back here to just kind of get my feet again and figure out what I was going to do, and they were having auditions at the printing house. Dad told me about it, and I thought, well, I had actually auditioned when I was 16. Again, that summer, I guess, is really the the very beginning of all of this. When I was 16, I auditioned at The Printing House. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what I thought would be available for me at 16, but I think Dad, more than anything, just wanted me to have the experience. But I came back and uh, in 1996 got hired. And so I worked for a while and then, much like my father, yet again, I decided that I wanted to pack everything up and travel. I'd never done anything like that before, and so I worked for a year and saved up as much money as I could and then put everything in storage, and I went to Asia. And for nine months, I traveled in Indonesia and Singapore and Thailand and Burma and uh, really just had a wonderful, wonderful time. I'm so glad I did it. And then I came back and uh, was able to work again at the printing house But I needed something else to do, and I wasn't sure what, and I kept checking the paper, and I saw that at the time, our local public radio stations, we were still a teeny tiny little station that operated out of the public library, down in the basement, basically in a little closet, and they needed weekend overnight board operators. So it was a shift that no one on earth would want to do, and my only responsibility was at the top of the hour and the bottom of the hour, I would push a button. Other than that, I had to just sit there and... Just make myself at home. And so, of course, I did it. And it was really kind of fun because I got to be in the basement of the library all by myself. I'd go into work at 10 o'clock at night, and I'd leave at 6 in the morning on the weekend and uh, push that button at the top and the bottom of the hour. But then I got to be in the library with all these books and be by myself. And then I would listen. Overnight, we would play the BBC. I got to listen to BBC World Service overnight, and they would have wonderful game shows. There was a game show called My Word. My Word. That was just wonderful. I had so much fun, and my dad sometimes would come to the library at, like, one in the morning, and he would pop popcorn and bring it to me, and we would sit and eat popcorn and listen to the BBC World Service. Pretty soon after that, the radio stations moved into their facilities now on 4th Street, and it's a really wonderful facility. We're three public stations. We're a a contemporary music station, a classical station, and a news station, all in one building, and we're down on 4th Street. And so I've been there ever since, as well as the printing house and... um, I went from being a board operator, once we moved into the new building, everything was automated, and we didn't need that anymore, so I proposed to them, at the time, they were having anybody do their underwriting announcements, and I said, you know, I can do this, I read read books at uh, the Printing House for the Blind, and I can do this for you if you want me to, and so I've become their station announcer, I do all their underwriting, and then over time, I've started um, hosting their All Things Considered, or their weekend edition Sunday morning program, so I'm the local host on Sunday mornings, and... uh, As I said, I've just been tumbling along after my father ever since I was about 16 years old and getting my very first steps into the printing house and the radio station. I've been very proud to do that.
2: Well, I'm obviously very proud of Jill. Uh, My other daughter was a monitor for a little while. She would uh, sit up and listen to what we did and correct us or stop us when we...
3: (laughs) Uh, That's really nothing new, is it? Right, yeah.
2: That's exactly right. She did that all her life. She still does. That's right. (laughs) She just got paid for it when she was a monitor. (laughs) Although she usually held for Jill. She didn't hold for me. But one time she did, and I had a book that had some particularly strong language in it. (laughs) And uh, I was a little embarrassed while I was reading it. She couldn't wait to run to Jill and said, You won't believe what Dad had to say. (laughs) It was wild. It was wild. I will tell you one other quick story about how my career as a disc jockey began. I didn't even realize it at the time. But I was about seven years old, and uh, we were sitting around the dinner table one night with my two brothers, my mother and father. And evidently, we boys had done something that day that uh, Dad needed to speak to us about. So it was kind of serious, and Mom said, Boys, before we begin to eat, your father needs to talk to you. Well, I had... Anybody remember Bazooka Bubblegum? had those little comic strips in there and I saw one that I had seen a few days before and I thought that was a funny thing this would be a great time to use that so I said wait a minute dad and I turned to my brother I said Bob would you pass the bread here comes the bologna." it got deathly quiet and I thought I'm gonna die Fortunately, my mother and my father had a good sense of humor. My mother started snickering. My dad forgot what he was going to say to us. But uh, whatever has been inflicted on the world through my disc it started there, somewhere along the line, I think. So crazy. As I said, I've been reading books since uh, 1978. I've probably read well over 1,000. I think it's probably about 1,200 now. I'm not sure. So, yeah, I had lunch. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I had lunch with uh, several people from the Library Users uh, group yesterday, and I told them I've read everything from Hannibal Lecter to Winnie the Pooh uh, with a little Dr. Phil thrown in the middle. So uh, it's been really interesting. I've read so many Louis L'Amour and Westerns, my tongue is bow-legged now. But I've just read lots of things, read lots of um, series. It's interesting, you read a book and you think, boy, this would make a great movie. I read Dan Brown's Angels and Demons and The Da Vinci Code. Uh, and several th- One of my favorites of all time, when we just watched the movie again a week or so ago on the Turner Movie Channel, was Little Big Man. Uh, it was just a great book. I had so much fun with that. But uh, we had lots of fun times with all kinds of books. People always ask, you know, you hear the finished product, you don't hear what happens <laughs> when we have to stop the machine and go back and edit it and all that sort of thing. And now there are many, many, but there are two. I didn't do these. I won't say who did them, but I will tell you about a couple. There was one where a particular lady was reading about, it was a wanton woman, but it came out as the wanton woman. <laughs> and then uh, Roy Avers wouldn't mind me. He, he would own up to this, I think. He <laughs> was talking about the hole in the window, but it came out the hole in the widow. And... <laughs> Didn't work real well there. Had to work on that one. I got dangerous for a while there because I was reading the Bob Hope joke books and the Milton Berle joke books, and people would avoid me when I'd come down the hall because they knew I had another one coming. Read some Garrison Keillor. I always enjoyed Garrison Keillor books. Um, I've read, uh, I think, every Vince Flynn book so far with Mitch Rapp, and uh, people avoid me when I read that one, too. They don't know what's going to happen because... (laughs) If you don't know him, he's an anti-terrorist guy, and boy, he takes out everybody. So, uh. and when you read a book, sometimes you kind of get in that character, you know. And so, <laughs> they look out for us. Julie, got anything you want to add to all that? Uh,
3: I was looking up online last night at the NLS catalog, and found that uh, since 1996, when I started, I've recorded 964 titles that that they have logged. And when I started out, I was doing almost exclusively children's books, and then a lot of nonfiction. I've done cookbooks, I've done knitting books, a lot of how-to books. Uh, For a while, I was doing magazines, so I did Newsweek and U.S. News and Reader's Digest. For a while, I was doing Seventeen, I think, maybe, recorded, and Teen People, maybe it was. That was always interesting. I have several series. I do the Virgin River series. In fact, I'm going to start another one. She just keeps writing them. I'm going to start another one probably next week. The series that I really like, I just finished, was uh, Maisie Dobbs. I don't know if anyone reads Maisie Dobbs. I just recorded another one of hers. Alexandra Cooper series by Linda Fairstein. I love Linda Fairstein. I think she's uh, great. I recorded The Help by Catherine Stockett. That, that was one of those books. You don't connect always with the books that you read, but some of them are written in such a way, the characters are drawn in such a way that it's just easy to read. And uh, that was one I had a good time reading. Um, Alison Pearson's I Don't Know How She Does It, and also I Think I Love You were two that I really liked. I don't know if you know of the uh, Dolly Parton Imagination Library. But she's, I've been doing a lot of books for that, and so those are kids' books, and uh, that's been really, really fun. And actually, I've been introduced to some... Children's authors and kids' books that I definitely want to get for my daughter. So that's been really, really fun. I enjoy doing young adult fiction and uh, kind of more the middle school, kind of high school, because you really get to stretch a lot when you do that kind of stuff. You really get to play and have maybe it's not always quite as serious or serious in a different way. It's always uh, very, very dramatic, but kind of in a broad, fun way. So I'm uh, currently reading, I thought I'd read you a bit from a book that I'm reading now. It's a memoir of a woman who decided to hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, which runs from Mexico um, along the West Coast up to Canada. So I will read you a bit. It's called Wild, From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail, by a woman named Cheryl Strayed. The trees were tall, but I was taller, standing above them on a steep mountain slope in Northern California. Moments before, I'd removed my hiking boots and the left one had fallen into those trees, first catapulting into the air when my enormous backpack toppled onto it, then skittering across the gravelly trail and flying over the edge. It bounced off a rocky outcropping several feet beneath me before disappearing into the forest canopy below, impossible to retrieve. I let out a stunned gasp. Though I'd been in the wilderness thirty-eight days... And, by then, I'd come to know that anything could happen and that everything would. But that doesn't mean I wasn't shocked when it did. My boot was gone, actually gone. I clutched its mate to my chest like a baby, though, of course, it was futile. What is one boot without the other? It is nothing. It is useless, an orphan forevermore, and I could take no mercy on it. It was a big lug of a thing, of genuine heft, a brown leather rikely boot with a red lace and silver metal fasts. I lifted it high and threw it with all my might and watched it fall into the lush trees and out of my life. I was alone. I was barefoot. I was 26 years old and an orphan, too, an actual stray. A stranger had observed a couple of weeks before when I told him my name and explained how very loose I was in the world. My father left my life when I was six. My mother died when I was 22. In the wake of her death, my stepfather morphed from the person I considered my dad into a man I only occasionally recognized. My two siblings scattered in their grief in spite of my efforts to hold us together until I gave up and scattered as well. In the years before I pitched my boot over the edge of that mountain, I'd been pitching myself over the edge, too. I'd ranged and roamed and railed from Minnesota to New York to Oregon and all across the West. Until at last I found myself, bootless, in the summer of 1995, not so much loose in the world as bound to it. It was a world I'd never been to and yet had known was there all along, one I'd staggered to in sorrow and confusion and fear and hope. A world I thought would both make me into the woman I knew I could become and turn me back into the girl I'd once been. A world that measured two feet wide and 2,663 miles long. A world called the Pacific Crest Trail. I'd first heard of it only seven months before when I was living in Minneapolis, sad and desperate, and on the brink of divorcing a man I still loved. I'd been standing in line at an outdoor store waiting to purchase a foldable shovel when I picked up a book called The Pacific Crest Trail, Volume 1, California, from a nearby shelf and read the back cover. The PCT, it said, was a continuous wilderness trail that went from the Mexican border in California to just beyond the Canadian border along the crest of nine mountain ranges, the Laguna, San Jacinto, San Bernardino, San Gabriel, Libre, Tehachapi, Sierra Nevada, Klamath, and Cascades. That distance was a thousand miles as the crow flies, but the trail was more than double that. Traversing the entire length of the states of California, Oregon, and Washington, the PCT passes through national parks and wilderness areas, as well as federal, tribal, and privately held lands, through deserts and mountains and rainforests, across rivers and highways, I turned the book over and gazed at its front cover, a boulder-strewn lake surrounded by rocky crags against a blue sky, then placed it back on the shelf, paid for my shovel, and left. But later I returned and bought the book. The Pacific Crest Trail wasn't a world to me then. It was an idea, vague and outlandish, full of promise and mystery. Something bloomed inside me as I traced its jagged line with my finger on a map. I would walk that line, I decided, or at least as much of it as I could, in about a hundred days. Thank you.
2: I enjoy that. Little did I know when I was reading her stories a long time ago that uh, it would turn into this. Very nice, very nice. A few years ago, I read a book that I really enjoyed by Charles Osgood, The Osgood Files. Charles Osgood, the CBS Newsman. It was a book of essays, and one of them was Words to Live By. There are traps in the English language that are more easily fallen into than gotten out of. One of these is to get so bogged down in the so-called rules that you make it difficult for the person on the receiving end to understand what you're talking about. At the beginning of every broadcast day, I sign on. At the end, I sign off. There is much work to be done in between. On radio alone, there are 21 broadcasts a week to be turned out. Each of these has a number of sentences that it's composed of. Words are what each sentence is made up of. What order should these words be put in? There is a violation of the writing rules, which I admit I am frequently guilty of. It is a trap that is easy to fall into, However, it is one that I do not much worry about. Ending a sentence with a preposition is what I'm referring to. The astute reader may discover several instances of what I'm talking about in the very piece you're looking at now. Ending a sentence with a preposition is considered okay where I come from. Some may feel that wherever I come from, I should go back to. Recently, I ended a sentence with a preposition, realizing full well that a preposition is what some people think that you should never, under any circumstances, end a sentence with. (laughs) Such people I'm sick to death of, fed up with, and put off by. (laughs) If terminal prepositionalism is an error, it is one that there is plenty of distinguished precedent for. Winston Churchill was once taken to task for ending one of his elegant sentences with a preposition, and his withering reply was, This is the sort of errant pedantry up with which I will not put. (laughs) To me, it all depends on the mood I'm in. Sometimes I don't write sentences that you would want to put a preposition at the end of. Other times the caboose position is the one the little preposition seems to be crying out for. I remember reading somewhere the observation that Pittsburgh is a bad city to get something in your eye in. However, it was pointed out Pittsburgh happens to be a very good city to get something in your eye out in. This is perfectly logical since a city people often get something in their eyes in would have a lot of experience in getting things people have gotten in their eyes out. The placement of prepositions in sentences is not the sort of issue that gets me all riled up. In fact, the people who fuss about such things are the ones I get mad at there's a story they tell at Harvard University about a visitor to the campus who asks, excuse me, but would you be good enough to tell me where the Widener Library is at? Sir, came the sneering reply at Harvard, we do not end a sentence with a preposition. Well, in that case, forgive me, said the visitor. Permit me to rephrase my question. Would you be good enough to tell me where the Widener Library is at? Jackass. I think that pretty well sums it up. Thank you. Thank you. I love him.
1: Thank you so much, Jack and Jill Fox.
0: Jack Fox and Jill Fox were recorded in Louisville, Kentucky in July, 2012.